Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. Happy New Year, <laughs> as it would be. This is coming out on New Year's Eve, so very exciting. Hope everybody has a wonderful holiday with friends and family, or I guess just, well, not to Clark anymore, but whoever does that now, Ryan Seacrest? I haven't watched that in a while. <laughs> Anyways, I will say I live in New York, and I have never seen the Times Square uh, ball thing in person, and nor will I ever go down there. It is hectic, and you have to get there early. But that's an aside. In this episode, I've got a call from Jason, a really great one, and I want to discuss that a bit. And then I'm going to talk about Dungeon 23. I mean, I'm not quite done, because even though this is coming out on the 31st, I'm actually recording it a few days early. So I have a handful of days left, but I figure I could talk about it, give you my insights, my thoughts, you know, why I'm not going to do it next year, if you will. <laughs> so uh, let's hear from Jason. And then we'll talk about Dungeon 23. Hey, Daniel. Jason here. Just wanted to call in a quick call about the rules as written discussion. And I'm not arguing that people should play rules as written, stop games in the middle of the game, look up rules, you know, the little other groups that do house rules. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But I do want to read something to you really quickly that I think reinforces where I come from. And I do get frustrated with this rules is written because sometimes it seems like there's only two sides. Either your rules is written by the book, horrible person, or you're a good person, the house rules. And there doesn't seem to be a middle ground here. And I'm not saying you're presenting it that way. I'm just saying that's kind of how these conversations come across. Either it's impossible to play rules by the book or you're a bad person for suggesting it. So... Here's a post by Gabber Lux. Now, if you're not familiar with Gabber Lux, you should check him out. This is He, of course, is from the first Hungarian D20 Society. Echoes from Fomaholt is the zine, one of the products they put out. Really interesting author, puts out a lot of great stuff. And this is over from the Swords and Wizardry Discord, Matt Finch's Discord. I'm just going to read a post from Gabber Lux here who poses Milan over there. There is a concrete benefit to playing close to rules as written, at least for the initial period. It shows the system as is, not as the preconceptions would suggest. A lot of D&D starts to make sense once you take it at face value. My epiphany here was OD&D's door rule, which I considered a historical relic, but which helped structure dungeon play in interesting ways that contribute a lot to the experience. In the case of AD&D, we have the you-must-use-every-rule-at-once-to-a-T meme and addict as some sort of scare story to keep people from giving an honest try. But that's not really what close to raw means. It means trying to engage with the rules in good faith, not endlessly second-guessing them. And I think that last part is where I'm coming from, and I think the important part. Engaging in the rules in good faith not endless second-guessing them. But that good faith means if you need to make a call at the table, then you do that. It means if you do house rule after you, you find something you don't like, that's okay. But the key is to accept the rules on their own merit. And I know you do this because you try to play games as close to rules as written as you can the first couple times you play them. But I just think this needed a voice because I think this voice gets drowned out on a lot of these podcasts. Um by the way, in case you're curious about the OD&D door rule that he mentions, that rule quoted from OD&D is 
Generally, doors will not open by turning the handle or by push. Doors must be opened by strength, a roll of one or two indicating the door opens, although smaller and lighter characters may be required to roll one to open doors. There can be up to three characters attempting to force open a door, but this will disallow them from rapid reaction to anything awaiting on the other side. Most doors will automatically close despite the difficulty in opening them. Doors will automatically open for monsters unless they are held shut against them by characters. Doors can be wedged open by means of spikes, but there's a one-third chance, die five or six, that the spike will slip and the door will shut. And then Gaber comments, In practice, this tends to open up slash restrict expeditions on the basis of which doors open easily and which don't, making the dungeon both hostile and unpredictable. It also has consequences for fleeing, securing flight paths, the chase rules of the game are fairly interesting too as they interface with the stuff, and orientation. Door-heavy areas can become risky while long corridors are better. It is a minor, often disregarded rule with interesting cascading effects. It is also in the corpus of rules which are less about realistic environmental simulation and more about constructing interlocking gaming structures, some of the most fascinating areas of old D&D. And again, it's not something you have to use, but it's something if you accept it on its own terms, you can kind of see what they were going for with this rule, and it makes the rule more interesting than doors are always stuck and always open for monsters, right? So I think there are interesting things here, but the big point I want to bring across is the idea that when I talk about running rules as written and trying to play games rules as written, I'm not talking about other parties playing it wrong. I'm not talking about being a, a slave to the print, but the idea of engaging the rules in good faith, not second-guessing them, and playing as close to raw as possible. And I'll admit, in just about any game I play, I'm playing close to raw because you're always going to adjust a little bit at your table to make it make sense for your table and your group, and that's okay. Anyhow, thank you for your show, Daniel. I really appreciate everything that you do. Thank you for indulging me this long call. If you want to break this up or you just want to sum up what I say and not play it, that's okay too. And if it doesn't fit, then, you know, throw it in the trash heap. It's okay. I hope you have a great 2024. I look forward to engaging with you and hopefully recording with you some in the coming year. Take care, my friend. Thanks, Jason, for that call. First of all, I'm going to start off by saying yes, 100%. I totally agree with both your sentiment and what Gabrilux uh, posts there. I am very familiar with them. I have lots of their zines. They're so, the quality of those zines. If you don't have any of the physical product, I definitely recommend ordering it. I'll try to find a link. The main catalyst for my kind of semi-rant wasn't the person that wants to play the rules as written or play close to the rules as written. I personally like to play the rules as close to written as possible in most cases. I'm not a a big change all the rules person. I think rule, you know, they're already there. It's easier for me to just use them, right? I find it's actually easier to use the rules and simpler. However, there is a certain group, we'll say, of individuals that seem to have this idea that somehow you are strong and powerful and frankly, more manly if you use the rules. And if you don't use the rules, then somehow you're weak and you're just giving in to your players and you're just coddling them. And that is just BS. <laughs> it's BS up, down and all around. It's like, to me, following the rules is actually easier 
because you don't have to take responsibility for any goof up that you made in your ruling that now has caused a major problem in the game, like somebody's player character that they'd worked on a long time, and then you make some house rule and it kills them. And then it's like, well, if you had just followed the rules, they would have been fined, right? So it's definitely, you're, you're, you're walking on a, a, a tightrope. To say that rules, playing rules as written is somehow more powerful or better is, is BS. To say it's a good way to play as close to rules as written, of course. Yeah, why wouldn't you? I mean, I, why even bother buying a game if you're not going to follow the rules? I mean, yeah, that's just common sense. I just don't love this elite kind of I'm the best because I do this rah-rah idea attitude. And that's really where I was coming from. Not that you shouldn't play the game rules as written. In fact, I use the door rule in OD&D in my solo game. You see me use it all the time. In fact, it's happened to me before. I, you know, the way the doors are closed and I had to, to spike them open and they closed on me and everything else. So, you know, I use all those rules when I can. Sometimes I forget because, you know, you get so wrapped up in the game. The other thing I want to say about that is you'll see later in the Dungeon 23 discussion that I talk about diving deep into a rule and how it can really kind of help you understand stuff a lot more, kind of like the door rule that's being talked about there. So, yes, I agree with you. I think there's nothing wrong with playing rules as written. There's, you know, and you're not bad because you're doing it. I don't necessarily see people painted that way, but you're, you seem to feel like they are. I see the opposite. So it's kind of funny how that works, right? I see the people painting the people who make rulings as somehow weak and, and unworthy. That's what I was referring to. So I think that, you know, like many conversations we have on these podcasts, they, there's a lot of gray area and uh, I'm glad you called in because I, I think that was a really, really good point that you shared. And, um, yeah, I, I agree. I 100% agree. Like when I run Night of the Ninja soon for, for you, I'm going to follow those rules. So when your ninja dies, I am not going to feel bad because I didn't house rule something, you know, and that, that made you die. It was the rules that killed you. So there you go. I think that's all I have to say about that. I'm not sure. If you guys have something to say about rules as written or not rules as written or what you think about that, let me know. I'd be curious. Okay, Dungeon 23. So for those who don't know, there was a blog post. And of course, if I had been smart, I would have looked it up first. I was going to make notes, but I figure I'll just, you know, I have I ever made notes for this podcast? Well, actually, I guess when I'm talking about the, the system, I, I have the system in front of me, the Unchained as it would be when I say the system. And, uh, but you know, I didn't. So there was a blog post in late 2022 suggesting that wouldn't it be interesting if you made one room of a dungeon each day of 2023 and you divided those rooms by level based on the month. So level one in January, level two in February, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the end, you'd have this massive dungeon, you know, over 300 rooms, obviously with, I guess, 365 with 12 levels, which is basically as deep as you want to go, right? I believe in OD&D or in some of the articles that Gygax originally wrote, he basically had, I believe, 13 levels maybe to his dungeon, 12 or 13, and then it kind of pops out on the other side of the world. So anyways, <laughs> I thought this is really fun and I don't really make mega dungeons. And I actually have, I think at the beginning of the year, I should go back and listen to that. I am not a fan of pre-made mega dungeons. I'm pretty sure I said that. I don't think I've changed my mind on that. I find them to be too stagnant because if you're talking about running a character or a group of characters from level one to level 12, right? So if you're going to be at level with the level you're going into, there's going to be a lot of changes and it's going to be hard for you to predict what can go on in this mega dungeon, even if it goes down to six levels, right? So to me, creating a massive mega dungeon, you know, 300, 500 rooms, 
with all these different levels and all these little backstories and themes and histories. And I know these are very popular. I know there are several very popular Mega Dungeon books, and I am not disparaging them at all for other people. They're not for me. I find that the second that my players touch <laughs> an adventure, things change. And I do not want to force them to follow the path of the adventure or what's there. And I don't want to have to keep changing the adventure because they're more powerful or less powerful or do different things or they have items that you know weren't predicted. I would rather just write it myself. To me, the ultimate example of this would be the module B3. B3, am I getting that wrong now? Which is one of my favorite modules. It is effectively, without getting too much into it, it is, in fact, a Mega Dungeon. I believe it's oosh, maybe three levels mapped out. And then there's a bunch of levels with maps. And then a final thing at the bottom, I don't want to give too much away. And all those extra levels aren't keyed. Because you're supposed to key them based on what's going on in the campaign and what the player characters do. There's too much the player characters can do between levels one and three to know what they're going to be doing at level four, five, six, seven. If you're running any campaign, in my opinion, but certainly in a Mega Dungeon. The stories that I've heard of people who have really enjoyed some of these massive Mega Dungeon books are generally people who do it for a bit and then the characters leave the Mega Dungeon and then maybe they come back later and you still make the campaign about the Mega Dungeon, but really it's not. It's about the world and you drift away from it. And I think I put, I'm pretty sure that I said when I made that other podcast, if anybody's run one of these giant Mega Dungeons from start to finish and didn't do anything else, let me know. And I mean, yes, my reach is not huge, but I don't think it's as common as people who run little bits and pieces of them. So what does this mean? Wow, that was a total side rant. <laughs> So when I got into this, I thought to myself, and I believe I said this, and I did not do it, though Chicago is amazing as they are, did it. I said, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to run the module as I go. That way I can change it and I can adjust it as the players are going through it, because that's what I would do. I would never pre-map out an entire Mega Dungeon. Well, guess what? I pre-mapped out an entire Mega Dungeon without running it. <laughs> but you know what happened is as I got into this, after like the first month or so, I started to look at this as a completely different project than when I very first got into it. So my initial thought was, I'm going to make this mega dungeon and I'm going to run it. It's going to be another way for me to create content for my players, right? But I also know that generally speaking, my group player group doesn't love dungeon delving for an entire campaign. They usually end up doing other things. They just like to do it. This is all my groups. Maybe it's because I'm not great at <laughs> DMing dungeon delves, or maybe I just play with people who are like-minded to me, which I wouldn't want to be in a dungeon for 12 levels either. Dungeon delving, really, once you pass the first few levels, is just about, okay, now I'm going to get feedback on this, I'm sure, massive combats, right? Because once you're fourth, fifth, sixth level, it's like you're going to have magic items, you're going to have powers that the dungeon itself is not going to really be a challenge, unless you put lots of tricks and traps and lots of combats. In the early levels, you're sneaking around, you want to avoid all the combat, it's dark, your torches are going to run out. That's super fun. Levels, higher levels, that just, that just doesn't appeal to me. I just don't see the appeal in that. And I understand why people that love dungeon delving, why they tend to peter out their campaigns at fifth level. You know, I totally understand that, 100%. So, <laughs> again, I haven't really talked much about this, but this is just kind of background of where I'm at. So let me talk about the process. So what did it become for me? Well, I love the, the Hobonichi Weeks Planner book. That has changed my life. I ended up getting another one, the, the days one for my personal life. And I got to tell you, it's fantastic. These are great planners to use. So 
That right there, worth it. (laughs) But the other thing is, I started to look at this as almost a daily exercise. The idea that I was sitting down every day and I only gave myself five minutes max, 10 minutes to do this. Because I knew that if I did what it seems like I saw a lot of people doing at the beginning, which is really getting into it, I would never sustain. So I said, I'm not going to do that at all. I'm going to do exactly what the original post says. Each room is going to be very short description of what's in there. It's a monster. It's a treasure. It's a little bit of a trick. That's it. The The planner works really well for that because it's only got a small amount of space. And especially with my terrible handwriting, I got to write a little bit bigger so I can read my handwriting. So I can only fit maybe two to three sentences there. So I'm limited, right? And one thing that I did was I really focused on the idea of just listing what's in the room. The only time I ever got into more detail, well, this is not true. In the early levels, I got into more detail, but let's get to my my end stage. The times that I list more detail was when there were tricks or traps. And the times that I, other times, if it was, the, if, if I roll, like I just did the other day, an 11-headed hydra, and it's, a, it's not its lair, I write 11-headed hydra. And of course, at this level of the dungeon, which is level 12, one per three PCs. And I got some questions about that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that in a second, about the actual stocking of the dungeon. But let's roll back. So at first, I used OD&D's technique, which I thought was really good. But then I realized that there were no traps. And I was like, ooh, that's weird. So then I started using BX. And I realized that I actually got quite a few traps. But then I found that I was spending too much time trying to make the traps interesting. Because I hate boring traps. I don't want to say oh, okay, in this room, there's a pit or the wall falls. I mean, you could say that once again or even five times, but in the course of your giant dungeon, it's like you're just going to keep repeating spear traps and this and that. And again, unless it's thematic, I don't love that in my dungeon. So I went back to OD&D. I was like, actually, I think I went to AD&D next. I went to the Appendix A, I believe it is, which is a solo dungeon. And I used that to start to stock. And what I realized there was the treasure was garbage, (laughs) which is also true with the strategic review. The treasures in OD&D are far greater than what is in AD&D in that section or OD or the strategic reviews, uh, OD&D, you know, uh, solo play, if you will. If you actually just use OD&D to stock the rooms, the treasure is, is, is much greater. So anyways, and I also learned a few things, I think, about OD&D that I didn't know before. So I did BX for a bit and I enjoyed that, but I felt like I was spending a lot of time on traps. Then thankfully... And I'm going to try to list this stuff in the show notes if I can remember, but I'm kind of going to record this and not edit it right away, so I might not remember to <laughs> list all this. But Taylor over at Clerics Wear Ringmail blog put up a post that was a 3D8 trap uh, creator, if you will. And it basically, you roll the first one and it's like how big the area is. You roll the second one to see, I think, uh, how it can be avoided, like a saving throw or a test or whatever. And then the third one is like the effect, like petrification or, and it lists a few. It says something like disabling effect. And then it lists in parentheses, like whole person, disabled, whatever. And I thought, this is great. So I started using that for my traps. And for a little bit, I was doing that. I think I went to maybe April or so, maybe May doing that. I can't remember when exactly his post came out. So <laughs> whenever that was, I, I, in fact, I'm still using that, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. So now stage, that we'll call that stage one, stage two, right? I went through like OD&D, then I tried BX, then AD&D, then I went back to BX. Then I realized something. Number one, I like the OD&D system better. I, again, I felt like there was too many traps. Oh, one thing I want to say, roll back one more. 
The other thing I was doing at the beginning was if the room was empty, I decided to furnish it or create something that was atmospheric. So in other words, instead of writing empty, I wrote, I'd roll on like the AD&T table to see what kind of room it was because you know, got tables in AD&T. Uh, I don't think those are numbered if I can remember right, but you can just pick or choose or I figured out a way to roll from it. So you might roll and be like, oh, a laboratory, or you might do this and you write a little description. But again, I felt like that was, it didn't necessarily, it made me want to think too much about what was actually going on in the level. And that's not what this exercise was becoming for me. What this exercise really was, was just me sitting down and doing something every day related to D&D. And I know this sounds weird and maybe it seems like it's not a, a great thing, but in, in fact it was, because even for me who thinks about D&D all the time, it was nice just to run with the mechanic. So I stopped doing that after a bit because I was like, okay, but do I want to roll here and get laboratory? And then next to there is like a chimera's lair. And then the next room over is like four kobolds and, you know, a goblin. I mean, how does that make any sense? It doesn't need to make sense, but it's like, it just didn't feel thematic. And I like my mega dungeons, at least sections of it to have themes if I can. So, and I'm going to get back to that. I'm going to roll back. I'm kind of dart darting around because I'm kind of hitting different areas. So we're talking about kind of filling up the rooms now. So about halfway through the year, I finally rolled back to OD&D. And at this point, I had discovered that clerics were ringmail post. And it something occurred to me. And I believe I may have podcasted about this, but maybe I just talked about it on Discord. It seems to me that OD&D tells you to put traps wherever you like in the hallways, like pit traps and stuff. But it says that treasure that is unguarded should probably be trapped or hidden, et cetera, et cetera. So then I thought to myself, well, hold on. This is what I'm going to do. So by like mid-year, my philosophy was I rolled monster or no monster. So I roll. If there's a monster, I roll. Does it have treasure? If it has treasure, I roll to see if it's in its lair. If it's in its lair, I roll the number appearing based on the lair and the treasure based on the lair. Done. If I roll a monster and I roll no treasure, then I roll I roll the monster randomly. Then I look at its hit dice and I figure out how many there should be based on one to three people in the party, which is what OD&D kind of gives you as a guideline, as does Holmes, actually. So that's why when people are asking about that, for instance, OD&D will say the, the normal type, the normal number should appear, and in most cases, the normal number is one, if the creature is of your level. So if you're at fifth level and a monster of, you know, five hit dice you encounter or right around there, like, I don't know what it would be, five hit dice, like let's say a troll, right, would be six or an ogre, which is four, right? So I think a mummy's five. So any of those three monsters, you'd get one of those per three PCs because you get one if you have one through three and then two if you get four through six, et cetera, et cetera. So this allowed me to set my base numbers and keep the, the thing flexible. So depending on who I'm running it with, I can adjust those numbers. Now I'm going to, at the end, talk a little bit about that. But so I just put that down. I didn't decide, okay, it's the average party is four players or the average party is, I just put that many because I felt like, again, this was almost shorthand for myself. Now, if I rolled the room was empty and the room had treasure. Oh, sorry. One more thing. If I rolled the monster and I rolled the monster had treasure and it was not in its lair, then I rolled on the standard treasure thing. 
what I used to call unguarded, because I think that's what it's called in BX, but I don't think in, a, in OD&D it's called unguarded treasure. It's just called treasure. That's the table I roll on if it's not the creature's lair. And it's also the table I roll on if the treasure is not with a monster, okay? So 90%, maybe 75% maybe of the treasure in the Mega Dungeon was use, using those tables. And I got to tell you, especially on deeper levels, there's generally, unless you, except for with the exception of things like dragons, there's generally way more treasure on those tables than there are in the lair tables. <laughs> so you almost don't want the monster to be in its lair, to, to be honest with you. But anyways, it, so basically what ends up happening is, again, I'll run through it real quickly again, just because that was confusing. You roll, is there a monster? Yes. Okay. Yes, then roll, does it have treasure? Yes. Has treasure, is it in its lair? Yes. Use lair treasure. Has treasure, it's not in its lair? Use the other treasure table. Roll for monster, does it have uh, treasure? No, done. Roll for the room, is it empty? Yes. Does it have treasure? Yes. Roll on that regular treasure table. Okay, simple as that. And that's how I established my rooms. Now, any room that had treasure that was not guarded by a monster, I used the cleric square ring mail chart, again, which I will, I'm saying it enough, so I better remember to put it in there, to give myself a basic idea for a trap, or I hid the treasure in some way. That's how I handled it. So basically, I think ODD offers three things. I can't remember what the third one is. I think trapped hidden or guarded, I think is what they say. So basically what I do is I rolled and I said on a one or a two, it's trapped. On a three through six, it's hidden. And then sometimes I hit it with a trap in a sense. Like I would do like, it's hidden in a pit, right? So like it is a pit trap, but the treasure at the bottom, or it could be hidden behind a, an illusionary wall or an illusory wall, depending on how you want to say that. I don't know which would be right there. Let me know which one's right. Um, otherwise there's a monster guarding it or it's trapped. Right, And the trap might be you touch it and you get teleported. I use a lot of traps like that. Because again, OD&D suggests that most traps are not going to harm or kill the PCs. These are the things I learned by really doing this. It made me look at precisely how the rooms in the stocking mechanism in OD&D worked. I had, you know, because I usually use the BX one, because that's BX is kind of what I got back into playing D&D with. In fact, I even used the BX one when I ran 5e, because I think it's just a nice, simple system. But I said, I'm running OD&D or making this for OD&D, so I'm going to really use this system. And I dug into it and I really got, you know, got a taste for it. I see how it is meant to work, I think, as far as I can interpret it. And I think it works pretty darn well. The great thing about it is when you use this system, you do find that you're getting tons of gold and silver and gems and stuff so that you will probably, I didn't do the math to see that you'd level up, but it does seem good. You know, like, I mean, you will get... 12,000, 15,000, 20,000 gold pieces, 30 or 40,000 gold pieces in gems and jewelry sometimes in a, a fight with a monster or in an unguarded treasure on level 10. And guess what? You need that if you're going to level up, right? So I think that it actually works. So it's funny, at the beginning, it seemed like I was getting one or two empty rooms per week, which tracks two would be right around a third. Okay, so sometimes I get one, sometimes I get two, occasionally I get three. But then weirdly, I don't know if it was my dice or something, but I started getting more and more empty rooms as I got deeper in the dungeon. And I decided that I didn't think that was going to work for me. So this is one thing where I broke from the, the, the procedure. And what I decided was in a week, once I got two empty rooms, if, if I rolled up another empty room, 
I would just have it have a monster in it. And then I would go from there because I felt like you're going to need the monster. And of course, monsters have the most chance of having treasure. So what I did, so I, I upped the number of monsters basically so that there'd be enough stuff going on in the dungeon. Because I felt like at high levels, you need the dungeon to be a little more packed. That's just what I did. I guess I could have adjusted something else, but I did do that. So I went away on the last couple levels. I've been doing that. It only happened once or twice. And if I don't run any, any empty rooms, I just stick with that. I don't always force two empty rooms. So I think in the end, what I learned from this was a couple of things. The first is, I think you can whip up a dungeon really quickly, which I kind of already knew in the back of my head, but I hadn't done, just using the procedures. And then if you are willing to be creative on the fly, which is generally how I like to work anyway, so for me it works well, you can just go, go with it. You don't have to have your dungeons really decked out and planned. The other thing I've learned is that oftentimes the random rolls tell a story, which we talk about a lot in the games, but this really played out. Because the one thing I did here throughout the whole thing, I started from the beginning doing this way, is I did each room. I rolled each room every morning. Basically, I would get up, I'd get my coffee in the morning. And before I'd sit down to start my work, I'd break my dice out and I'd roll for the room. Generally, it took uh, maybe two to five minutes. If there was treasure and needed to be, have a trap in it, that took a little longer. Because I had to think of the trap, right? Because the, again, the clerics wear ring mail. It just gives you an idea. It doesn't give you like a full blown, doesn't say this is the trap. It says like the trap is a single person effect that needs to save versus spells that paralyzes. I mean, I guess you can make, you know, you want to add flavor so it's not boring. But then what I would do is on Sunday morning, I would roll the last room. And because I don't generally work on Sundays, I would then sit down and I would draw the section. This allowed me to create a little bit of a story with my random roles, placing the giant, you know, on far away or close to the dragon that you rolled on that level tells a story. Having the unguarded treasure that's hidden in a small room behind a room that has chimeras in it, right, who don't have treasure, right? You can build a little bit of a narrative and a story. You can see how this thing can be played out. And I think that is good. It reminded me a little bit of, and I've talked about this on my YouTube, where I would roll three random things. I had like events. Some were monsters, some were like weather, some were just random things that could happen. Some were things you might come across, like locations. And I would roll all three of them at the start of the day. And then I would craft the day out of it. So I might roll like burnt forest, a tribe of ogres, and fleeing prisoners, right? I might just roll those three things up and then I'm going to go, oh, well, you know how that's going to work, right? (laughs) So that's basically where we're at, right? You can basically create that. This is the same thing. I looked at each section and I went, all right. And I would put things near each other. Like if I rolled like two encounters with, I think at one point I had rolled a single like sorcerer and then like two enchanters or something, you know, like basically three magic users like separately. I put them near each other and I just decided I put them near one of the treasure rooms and I thought, Maybe this is a party that split up because they're looking for the treasure. So I didn't write that in, but I cr- I put it there so that somebody looking at it could have that idea. And I think those are the things I've taken from this. One is that sometimes it's nice to really be hands-off. I mean, I'm generally like that anyways, but I really got a feel for it this year. Just listing four ogres, 35 gold pieces, a pit trap, allows the person running the adventure, or maybe forces them, depending on how you want to look at it, to make the adventure suit what they want it to be. 
not dressing it a very specific way, not forcing a narrative, but kind of putting things in place that if somebody is familiar with certain tropes, they'll get it. And if they're not, then they'll do something different. And that's 100% fine. Crafting the rooms and the in the layout after I figure out the 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 contents is something that I've been doing now for like the last six months on my other all the other adventures I do, which I think really works well. And I like the idea of you know massive project. Now, why am I not going to do this again next year? Number one, I think some people are hinting about you know Dungeon Twenty Four, but there's also Hex Twenty Four that people have been chatting about. I don't want to do anything like that and not because I didn't enjoy this process or not because it wasn't fulfilling or something, but because I now have a 365 room dungeon that's basically just sketched out. And what I think I'm going to do this year, and I'm not putting any pressure on myself on any time limit or any specific pattern, is I'm going to take these levels of the dungeon and I am going to craft them. I'm going to take the first level, maybe the first two levels, and I'm going to put redraw them and put them together as something that works, and then I'm going to start running it. And I will adjust and change and manipulate and add detail as I go. And if maybe there'll be one shots that I'll do, and I'll just use chunks of dungeon as uh, as maps, maybe I'll start a mini mega dungeon campaign. Who knows? But I think in 24, 24 that's much more likely what I'm going to do with this than rather start another project, create another adventure that I'm not running, right? I don't necessarily like to create adventures just to create them. I had to create them to run them. And I just like I said last year, so maybe I'm going full circle. I did this because I thought it would be a fun project, and it really was. If you didn't do it last year, or you started and you just overwhelmed yourself by doing too much, I recommend just approaching it at your own level. Either do it, we'll call it rules as written, uh, you know, uh, just as simple as possible, because you will be able to do that. For most people, I mean, literally, it doesn't take that long to roll on a random encounter. I mean, it's like you could even take color-coded dice and make one die roll and interpret it, and you could have a room done in two minutes, right? It doesn't take that long to do it, and it makes you think in a different way because you're forced to not give a lot of detail, and I, I think it's cool. However, if that doesn't work for you and you would rather do something else, I think the idea of creating something over the course of the year is nice. It allows you to dig deeper into something than many of us do. I think a lot of us either, even if we play a game a lot, we do the the same rules, we, you know, we, we do the things we do, right? How many people have experimented and used every spell in the game, right? Very few, right? Because we fall into tropes and people use certain things. So I think just messing around and using different stuff or deep diving into a very specific system or process of a system can be really good. So yeah, I recommend something like this. I'm not going to do it though for the reasons stated before. Anyways, I'm looking forward to 2024. I want to get a lot more stuff going on. And this was 2023 was a, a low point for me as far as the quantity of gaming. I had kind of backed off a little bit at the end of 22 because I think I was feeling a little bit overwhelmed because I, there was a period where I was playing almost every day. And I just... I started to settle into some different things. I started to involve myself in some more solo play, which I was really enjoying, which, you know, I obviously I record it for, the, maybe it's not obvious if you don't watch that channel, for the Bands Keep Actual Play channel, but, you know, I spend time thinking about it and I, you know, and I, I come up with draft ideas. So it's really fulfilling for me to do that. I like the solo play. I also am running now really steadily my in-person campaign and honestly playing every week with a fantastic group of players 
is a lot and enough. You know, it's like, I don't, it's funny. There's a, like KR will talk about, you know, and we, I think we even made a Monster and Treasure about that. And that's come out already where we talk about the idea of D and D being a campaign game. And I think it really is. I think that, there, that as much as I enjoyed and loved playing one shots, like constantly with my friends, digging in and playing one day a week in a campaign with the same consistent people is just so fulfilling. So I was really happy this year that I got to to get back into that and really dig into it. I mean, the reality is I haven't actually stopped with this group. We've been running since 2017-ish, maybe 16. But this was, you know, we kind of started a fresh campaign. We started 100% in person because we were finally past the lockdowns and stuff. I mean, there's been a few times, obviously we missed sessions here and there. But basically we have been running. Todd at game uh, joined our group this year, Todd from Hexpress. And he's a great player. And it just it's been really great. So I'm I'm super happy. It was a great year for me. I'm gonna try to run more next year though. Cause now I'm feeling as much as I say that, I'm feeling like I miss running lots of little one shots and mini campaigns. And I wanna dig into some of the systems I haven't really run. I've been running OD pretty much exclusively. I wanna dig into DCC again. I wanna dig into some of these other like kind of fringe games like um Warriors of Mars. I want to play the hateful place more. I love that game. I want to maybe restart my Coriolis campaign. So there's a lot of things. Now I sound like Carl over the geomologist, but there's a lot of games I want to play. Oh, I, I, but I should also say too, that I'm also in a campaign as a player regularly. So it's not like I was completely only running my campaign. I am in uh, Andy's <laughs> Call of Cthulhu campaign, which is fantastic. And, and I can 100% say that because if anybody has listened to this podcast or talked to me, you would know that. Call of Cthulhu is probably one of my least favorite games. That's right, Jason. Even worse than AD&D. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no games are bad. They're just games that different people like. But Andy is just such a great keeper that I'm just very, very happy to play. And again, another amazing group that we started playing together, again, around the same time that I started my my group in, uh, that I play in person with. In fact, some of the players are in both groups. And a great group of players that got together. We met in a tavern, like literally, and whenever that was, 20. 16 or 2015 and we started playing DD and we're we have great friends now so this hobby can really bring people together in a, in a fantastic way i'm going to be at gary con for anybody who's going so please if you are going let me know i mean i'd love to hang out i do a dwarven drinking game i'll probably talk about it again uh, on wednesday night and uh, daniel is a lightweight so just so you should know that uh, but i do it anyways and you don't have to drink last year we had a uh a young man, he was 18, he drank water, and it was totally fine, although maybe it's cheating a little bit, but that's okay. It was still fun, and <laughs> it's a great thing. I also did a pickup game in the middle of the, of the thing, so I just want to have lots of fun playing with lots of people this year. If you're playing something and you're loving it and enjoying it, you know, let me know. Uh, I'd, I'd be curious what people are playing and what they're thinking, because this hobby is just fantastic. It's funny to me that like, I went away from it for so much of my life, and then I came back to it and I can almost not remember not playing because I, I dove in so deep. <laughs> so here I am making podcasts, making videos, talking about D&D. It's New Year's Eve. You probably don't want to be listening to me for the rest of the night. So I'll let you go at that. I want to thank Jason for calling in and for just all the great support ever since I've started this podcast. Such a great guy. Jason, become a good friend of mine. Happy New Year to everybody. Check the show notes. You're going to find links to Dords RPG Variety Cast. I will try to remember to put a link to Clerical Ringmail, that specific post. I'll put a link to my game down there, Unchained. 
So we'll hear more about that coming into the new year. I'm going to start getting into the meat of it. I'm trying to decide what I should do for character classes. And I guess that's something we'll talk about in 2024. I'll talk to you soon.